This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2020, held in Belleville, Pennsylvania, on March 6 and 7. The hybrid school. Um, first of all, we have to define what a hybrid is, and I believe the hybrid is the idea of when we have a hybrid car, we're taking the best of both worlds and putting them together, right? I think that's, that's kind of the idea of a hybrid. Uh, we have that in the seed corn industry, etc. Um, so I'm not sure if that's not necessarily how, how I'm looking at it, but um, definitely two worlds coming together. This morning I referenced uh, Bethel being around for, this is our 40th year of school, and we've definitely gone through a, a period of change. Initially it was all uh, self-paced, we understand in one big room, one big learning center, uh, done to the book the way CLP was started, and it was that way for a long time. One learning center, two parts. Uh, every student had their own little uh, office, except for the first graders. They had their own little room. We continued working through some changes probably 20 years or so ago, where we began to do a little more lecturing, uh, where the teachers took time to actually teach the classes rather than just answering the flags. And when they began to do that, there was rooms that upstairs were divided into, I believe, three rooms and the high school went downstairs to the basement. And so there was four distinct places of learning rather than just one big learning center. And today, uh, the school was renovated in 2013 with multiple classrooms, and so we're again inside that, that picture where we have the different classrooms, teachers with one or two grades, all of high school together. And so what do we mean when we're talking about a hybrid? Um, where... The students aren't just doing their own pace, doing their own thing, on their own time, setting completely all their goals, which is what my experience would have been in the 90s, where I sat at my desk, I set my personal goals, I was not at the same place in the books as the person beside me, I was totally on my own. And the teachers came and took care of us, answered our questions, etc. But rather we are now at a, at a point where from grades one to eight, uh, the teachers set all the goals. Um, and even though there's times they don't necessarily lecture everything, but all the students in the classroom are kept at the same place. CLP has adjusted their materials many times, and as they're doing those adjustments over the years, they've put it into more of a lesson format, which is wonderful. And so it fits both classrooms. So in the small school, which is what we were to start with, the self-paced works so well. You don't need as many teachers, uh, and, and you can have grades 1 to 12 with 10, 15, 20 students and make it work smoothly. But as you get bigger, the interest became more the actual teaching process, which is what uh, I think teaching is to begin with. Is teaching is just that. It's teaching. It's sharing. It's lecturing. And so that became more and more a part of what we're doing. Um, up in high school, uh, a lot of the more difficult subjects, we lecture. We, I keep the students together. Uh, especially in ninth grade, uh, but as they progress through them, uh, they tend to have a few things that they, they can do on their own. They set their own goals uh, to accomplish some of those uh, subjects that I don't have time to lecture. So I think there's some pros to this. Um, it allows the teachers to choose what subjects to teach. It allows the teacher to, well, this is one that students are going to struggle with, so I really want to spend some time teaching this. Um, 
And that can change from year to year, perhaps, depending on your student body and what they may be struggling with. Uh, gives the teachers some variety. Um, I'm not only teaching math and science, and that's all I do. Uh, I get involved in teaching virtually pieces of all the subjects, uh, as well as my co-teachers. And so some variety for us. It allows one teacher to cover more material in a multi-grade classroom, uh, especially for high school. I could we could never cover all the material with just me. We don't have the time for that. But it does allow us to still cover the credits, et cetera, that we need to uh, from Pennsylvania's perspective. They do some by themselves uh, while we lecture some others. I think the, uh, the hybrid classroom does give the opportunity for the students to, to learn, to set their own goals, um, build some self-discipline, and yet we still have the lecture time, the time where we can go on some bunny trails, talk about life, and, and learn together. And I think that's what's very important uh, from a teacher's perspective. We do complete all our subjects, we complete all our books, because we're rooted in accomplishing all 10 light units uh, from CLP. That is just built into our uh, infrastructure, or into our DNA, I guess. A lot of schools that do textbooks don't necessarily finish. The last chapter, well, we're not done, that's fine, it was enough for a credit, and we move on. But it's kind of built into us that we will finish, and so I think that's another pro to the hybrid classroom. Um, maybe that's not good or bad, I'm not sure, neither good nor bad, but uh, we really try to make sure we accomplish all the material. Another pro, I think, on a very practical level is uh, it allows the teacher to answer the same question once rather than going from flag to flag to flag to flag knowing that you know what's coming and you address it all together uh, in the class time rather than answering the same question over and over again. <clears throat> the cons to it, I guess, um, not, not everything gets lectured, not everything gets taught. Uh, if we could have an endless supply of faculty who are capable of teaching everything, it would be wonderful and we could accomplish that, but we can't. So not everything does get lectured. And the students have experience with basically one teacher. They're stuck with me all day. They don't get the opportunity to move to get someone else's perspective. And so I think uh, there are some benefits too. Uh, and maybe in a bigger classroom setting where you do move from class to class and experience more than just one teacher. In the situation where you're trying to lecture everything as much as you can, you end up with uh, your class time being at a premium and you, everything's packed in tight. So sometimes the lectures, the subjects get cut short because, well, we just don't quite have time to accomplish this today. When I, um, when I first taught, before I taught here at Bethel, I was involved in an ACE setting school and that was my introduction to teaching. And again, the one big classroom, we had grades six to 12 around the room, and my job was to go around and answer flags. And I, I can't say I didn't enjoy that. Um, did take the opportunity one time to teach an algebra one class because I had a group of students that were struggling. They were all together, and so we did do that. Um, but from my perspective today, the opportunity to actually teach, the more classes that can be lectured, and physically, verbally taught by the teacher uh, is usually very, very beneficial to the student and beneficial to the teacher. You learn far more when what? When you teach something. Uh, and so the opportunity is good for not only the student, but also the teacher. So I think the, the hybrid classroom, we have about 60 students. 
uh, and the hybrid classroom fits us pretty well right now. Um, the bigger the school gets, the more it feels like we can move to the more of a classroom environment. For those of you in small schools, it might be a bit difficult to do it this way. So if you have questions, uh, please put them in the basket and we can endeavor to ask, uh, answer them tomorrow. Thank you. When you move into a foreign country, things change. There's a different culture, and it isn't long until your children are speaking a foreign language, and they think differently, and they, they uh, act differently. And what happens if a foreign culture moves into you? The same thing happens. The things change. One of the advantages of being older is that you can notice changes. And there is a significant sea change that has been occurring. And our children are, in fact, speaking, in a sense, a different language. There are changes that they're experiencing that they did not experience a generation ago. One of the ways that, this, and there are many people noticing this, this is actually in the broader culture, and we are not immune from it. <clears throat> and I've heard, I do teach a class in child development every summer. Faith builders have been doing that for the last 20 years. And this is the kind of thing that I, I follow, and it's rather uh, intriguing and also quite challenging. Recently, I've conversation with teachers I've heard some comments like this. If you just assign a penalty to children, this is what you did, so this is what you get, a response you get is, you're not being relational enough. You don't care about me as a person. Uh, you just, all you care about is your, is this rule, this system. And then if you, if instead that I move in and talk to you about it, and trying to be relational, we say, well, you are shaming me. I feel ashamed that you call attention to this thing that I'm doing. And so, well, what do you say if you're shaming somebody? And then, <clears throat> if that doesn't uh, get you off of them, the final card that they pull, which always silences you, is, I'm unsafe. I feel unsafe with this conversation. And that means that you are threatening me and a key word today is now you are therefore abusing me. They may not say that. And so, several, and so if I am a victim, something is being done to me. And you, the system maybe that I'm in, or you are the perpetrator of that uh, violence uh, that I'm suffering. This is something new in the last decade, to the extent at which it is anyway. There are several buzzwords today. Uh, I notice changes to language. For example, I notice when so comes in. You introduce, well, another, a common, how many of you ever heard somebody say, stay safe now? Let me see your hands, all right? That's, that's new. Uh, there is, it's a buzzword, be safe. Safety and becomes an ism. Stay safe. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being safe. Don't get me wrong. But there's something new about this. Something different. The historic meaning of of being safe is that you're free from either harm or risk. If you're totally safe, there's no risk whatsoever. And uh, 
And a new twist on this is <clears throat> being emotionally safe. I need to be free from anything that would disturb my feelings. And since we're in an age when you create your own meaning and create your own purpose in life, why well, anything that would cause you to reevaluate uh, your feelings or thinking that does not affirm you is, is, not, uh, is not safe. And so a lack of affirmation, if you don't affirm me in whatever I'm doing, I'm not safe around you and I end up feeling like a victim. It's fascinating that childhood anxiety and depression, I'm talking about elementary age children, uh, you can read this across the culture, it's hugely uh, increasing. I think I saw a figure that from 2012 to 2017, it increased by something like 20%. And so there's, uh, there's numerous writers talking about, about children being very fragile. And the problem is not with the children. I remember being taught, I remember hearing from a child uh, in sermons, I remember a preacher saying, you know, the scripture really doesn't address the lambs much, it's the sheep. And so the, this is addressed to us as adults. This is where the problem lies. The children are, as I said, if a foreign culture moves to you, your children start speaking a foreign language. And many times the adults don't speak the language as well as the children do. So there's something afoot here in the, in the culture, there are many factors, and probably the biggest one is parenting. And, and uh, it's a, uh, <clears throat> the challenge today is in gaining and holding and keeping the hearts of the children. The problem is that we, in many cases, do not have our children's hearts. And the, it seems that the root is a lack of proper attachment. This is a term that's, uh, that's used in a particular way. We're used to the term bonding with, with infants, but this continues on through uh, childhood. And the, uh, <clears throat> a book, uh, this is one of the books referenced in the material over here, here from uh, Loving Arms, uh, Gordon Neufeldt. Uh, simply outlines, and it's very, uh, very typical in a normal childhood development, why attachment has three major parts. There's actually, it's broken down into more than that. But uh, one is closeness. And so if you, if someone's attached to you, they, they just enjoy being around you. They enjoy when daddy's home, or it's, if it's in the classroom, they enjoy being in the presence of the teacher. Secondly, if you're really attached, you have a sense of being at home when you're, this is home and it feels good. And you're home in the classroom. It feels like the universe, it feels like I belong here. And the third one is, this is these are progressive. If you feel at home, there's a freedom to give your heart and to be known and to share your secrets. And what we're seeing is, is uh, in many homes, this is not happening. What, uh, what parents need to be as a provider for their children? To actually be what I am what, what you need. Be a provider. 
And being the child's primary attachment orientation, that the child is primarily oriented to you, there are other attachments too with friends, but the primary one needs to be the adults in the child's life. And many children today are simply unparented. Uh, and the context in which the parenting done is primary because there are books by the ton, literally, on techniques. But without proper relationship between child and parent, techniques can actually have the opposite effect that you want them to have. A scriptural term would be provoke not your children to wrath. We all know the consequences of using a rod in anger. It can have the opposite effect. And so it doesn't matter. There are parents who are desperate to know how to do this. And what they, don't, what they need is not to know how to do, but to get the proper relationship first. And so parents need to be loving and firm and realize that they can train the child's heart and desires, not just the cognition. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just zipping through this. Men must train their sons to be men. That's a huge subject. And there needs to be the hierarchical intergenerational involvement. The scripture would say that the hearts of the fathers need to be turned to the children and the children to the fathers. And the key problem today, and it started, I must confess, with my generation in the 60s, is peer orientation. When people, when the adults become irrelevant to my life, and I turn to my peers, and my primary orientation is to my peers. Looking to my peers for my cues, taking my cues from my peers, finding my significance from my peers, finding affirmation, affection, belonging from my peers, they can't give it. And the digital media actually just throws fuel on the fire because it's peer orientation going wild because you're already fixated on your peers and what happens is that you almost feel then that being in relationship to parents is irrelevant because they have nothing, they're, they're in another world. We're in this world, they're in that world. And then you take that to school. The key classroom problem is, is the heart rather than the mind. And the traditional teaching capitalizes on things like curiosity and challenge and it's, uh, but it's ineffective with disconnected students. If your students feel that this atmosphere that I'm in is foreign to me and has no connection with what my life means, why they're not interested whether you stand on your head or whatever you do. And so the bottom line is that the person of the teacher must connect with the person of the student. And if, if that isn't the case, why normal approaches to teaching and especially discipline can backfire and actually be counterproductive. Those are some conclusions, uh, those are some summaries. The, uh, the issues are, are huge and uh, it's actually a simple problem but a very huge problem. And it is a challenge for us to get the hearts of our children. Finding and training teachers, 
I created two subtitles for this, identifying, training, and sustaining our own, or you could say getting the right people on the bus, finding their niche, and keeping them. I'm just curious, how many of you are looking for teachers in your schools for next year? Yeah, so I am also, we are. And so this may not be extremely helpful for that. If you are looking for teachers uh, in five or ten years from now, and I am, and I hope you are, this might be a bit helpful. Sustaining and training our own can prevent a lot of crises that may require finding a replacement teacher. And normally we know who's responsible to find teachers in our schools. But it may not be as clear as who's supposed to train them and give them what they need to keep going long term. So who shall influence our children? What tools do they need? And what will sustain them? So when we think hiring, this is another of those catch terms for, for today, but we hear the term sometimes buy local. So I think hire local. Start there. What are the resources around us? Who's in our congregation? I think about young people. I think also about Older middle-aged people, maybe mothers that have raised their families to a certain point are able to do some work outside of the home again, and that may be a potential person. And so we should always be thinking ahead about what the needs will be and who the people are that are coming along. Look ahead. Give high school students opportunities to be involved. You could have a student teacher day. You might have older students tutoring younger ones. Give them a taste of what it feels like to be involved in someone's life and help other people learn things. Think about your students. Who would, who would this person be in 5 or 10 or 20 years from now? Is there potential there? Observe. Invest in the future. Plan for your retirement before it's here. A couple factors I think about in guiding us in hiring teachers about who should it be. I think about character. Just a couple words for character here. I think we ought to think about a servant posture. Another word for that would be humility. These people need to be under authority. We must be under authority before we can be over others. These people need to have strong, stable relationships, particularly with their authorities, and a strong work ethic. So, a few thoughts about character. Who has the aptitude, I think, there's a, 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 set, a sense in which school's an academic world, and we don't need to be uh, geniuses. We don't need to have a lot of degrees. We don't need to be brilliant, but we should have some aptitude in our work. Otherwise, it's going to be frustrating and difficult. A moderate faculty for learning will be a blessing. In other words, it's not simply enough to just love children. You need to have some ability to provide the skills needed to do the job at hand. It's not enough to enjoy being in a nice house. That doesn't give you the skills to build a house. <clears throat> Thirdly, then, who has the interest? Who has the want to? Who has a sense of calling, maybe even a career? And so I'll just summarize again by saying, you know, we enjoy apples, or we enjoy, I'm sorry, we enjoy pineapples and bananas and lettuce in January, but overall, buy local first. Invest in the local community. You know, I think invest in the local community, I think about our students, but I also think of our teachers as being in a position where they can be invested in heavily. 
Who shall influence our children? Secondly, what tools do they need for the job or training? And again, who's responsible for this? Well, I would suggest that whoever hires is, either directly or through delegation. So I, I talked with several of our long-term teachers at our school, my school, and we talked about uh, training or lack of it and, and uh, sustaining or lack of it. And so I have a few things that they mentioned that I'll just, I'll just, I'll just note briefly. It, it occurred to me that there are plenty of options available for training these days. I think older men like Jonas could testify that when he started teaching 45 years ago, there weren't nearly as many options. It's not so much a matter of finding options as it is actually getting them done. And so as, as administrators and board members, how do we make this happen? But a few, a few things of note, and I think these first ones are particularly important. I would encourage you to consider apprenticeship on an experienced teacher. When we had one case where we had a young lady come in who's going to be teaching the next year for the first time, and she was in our school for three weeks, worked with the current teacher, and that was a huge help for her. Have a mentor teacher for at least a year. Be a classroom aide, someone to be accountable to. You know, when you come to school, it's nice if you, uh, you come in the driveway and there you are and you come into your room and this is my space. Well, what are we going to do? I mean, where do you start? What's the first thing? How do you know unless someone's there to show you the way? I remember starting teaching when I was 20 years old, never taught before. I came to school three days before it was time to start. I was supposed to be the lead teacher and fresh off the dairy farm and here we are. We're going to have school in three days from now. I would try not to do that to anyone in our school. But we survived. But you know, in about three years, I was done. I needed to do something else or find, find, I felt like I was stuck. I didn't know what I was doing and what I was trying to do even. So we can come in and teach for a year or two, if that's what you want. But if you want something more, then it'll take a little more than that. Teachers We Get Faith Builders can offer answers to some of the orientation questions. Visiting other schools, classrooms similar to my own, visiting with other teachers who do the same work I'm involved in. If you're a one and two teacher, your board can help you by finding other one and two teachers to collaborate with. Summer terms of faith builders, and if the school pays for these, it makes it much more feasible and practical, and these can provide tremendous opportunities for professional development and networking, which I would suggest is equally important to the professional development or assisting the professional development. CLE offers teacher training. There are lots and lots of options. I'm not trying to list them all, but just a couple that my teachers mentioned. And uh, again, as I said, I, I feel like it's more the, the, the uh, enabling part that needs to happen. That's what you as a board can do to, to help your teachers access these resources. So we looked at who shall influence our children, what tools they need, and finally, what support network provides sustainability. And there's overlap here between training and sustainability. Again, I'm going to list a few things here. At some point in this work, we want to know why we're doing what we're doing. So a little philosophy of ed would be helpful. My teachers mentioned self-studies. So and this could be a, a hiring thing too, if someone really isn't curious about life, it's going to be hard to be excited in front of your students every day. But teachers who can do self-studies, maybe they study ADHD, read aloud revival, sensory path, learning disabilities, 
benefits of memorizing poetry, developing book studies for literature, all these things can get them to expand their world and keep them excited about their work. Even things like cross-cultural experiences. October Teacher's Workshop at Faith Builders. You're probably familiar with the doc, or you've heard about it this weekend. I'm going to think now a little bit more about staff as a group. Staff interaction, I think, is important. These are a few things we do uh, that I think end up providing a sense of belonging and knowing each other. I try to visit our classrooms once a week and ask some questions. I, I think I would encourage you as boards or administrators to have someone who does this, who actually visits your teachers every week and just ask a few questions about how things are going. We have a cabin weekend. We do some informal interaction after dismissal almost every day. We have bi-weekly staff meetings. We have weekly teacher reports, board meeting reports. Sometimes these things feel like hard work. But if you take the long view at it, if you think about how we, how we actually build each other up, how we belong, I think it's a good investment. Of course, if your elementary teacher has 40 tests to check and you're sitting here in staff and you're talking about something that feels completely unrelated to her, well, that can be difficult. Other factors that provide sustainability. Adequate pay. Parent-teacher conferences. Informal interaction with parents. Professional services for students with unusual needs and a board willing to be flexible with academic expectations. I believe with the resources available today for us as educators, every student in your school should be able to have a reasonable, a reasonably enjoyable experience in your institution. It helps if your community values the work of your teachers. There are many ways to say that, or not. We also talked about how that multiple long-term teachers provide vision, support, and camaraderie. I know vision statements and mission statements are all the buzz these days. I don't know if you have to have it written up, but if you live it, that counts for something too. What works against sustainability? Just a few things, grading papers. High-need students or poor student-teacher relationships, considerable drain, or high-needs parents. Or lack of time for relationships outside of school, financial stress, or loneliness. Sometimes we feel alone in our work. When we get to church on Sunday, all the farmers can talk about their farming and so on and so on, and some of us feel like we're the only one doing our, what we do. And then we can feel like we have problems to solve that no one else knows about, which is why your staff interaction is important, and also board interaction. Children are meant to be raised in community and we teach best in community. As a teacher, administrator, father and pastor, which is where many of us are, I feel like I'm heavily invested in God's Shalom Project, redeeming and calling back to himself a broken world full of needy people, of whom I am one of them, and I see the school as playing a vital role in bringing about that community. We're about growing people, whether it's students, staff, or parents. Technology and our children. Technology has benefited our schools. I remember saying years ago that I don't think I would teach if I couldn't have a computer. 
Uh, it's simply, they're so helpful and time-saving. But technology continues to change rapidly. And how well is your community doing with technology? Jonas just mentioned social media. People are raising an alarm. And I think it's good for us to be aware of what's, what's being said. Here's a Pew report from last year, May. It says this, 95% of teens now have access to a smartphone. And almost half of them are constantly online. How do you live well if you're constantly online? What's, what's it mean to be human and be constantly online? <clears throat> Here's the American Journal of Psychology, winter 2018. How many times do you touch your phone in a day? If you're average, it's over 2,600 times. Now, I know that you touch your phone more than once, and each time you use it, of course. But on the average, that's still two hours and 25 minutes a day. Why are we busy? That's three hours and 45 minutes for heavy users. And it goes on to say, the same article goes on to say that today the smartphone is so much more than a phone. And it's so much smarter. And it did not spontaneously develop artificial intelligence. This type of technology has been increasingly designed, designed to hook us more and more to the point where internet addiction is being considered for inclusion in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the Bible of psychologists and psychiatrists. Technology, I mean, <clears throat> internet addiction. Here's one from MIT Technology Review. Screen time may be physically changing children's brains. There's a clear link between higher screen use and lower white matter integrity. And white matter can be roughly thought of as the brain's internal communications network. Does that matter? And he was asked, well, so just how much time, screen time is okay for my kid? He said this, it's hard to say what the safe age or amount of screen time is. And his motto is screen free until three. At least this gets kids to preschool with a solid anchor in the real world where their basic sense of connect, connection with caregivers and early language skills have solidified. Now, if you're listening to Mr. Ebersol's, I think you'd hope, hopefully we say before, I mean, screen free till three, that sounds pretty early, but is that the case in our communities? How many children are on screens before three? Here's one from the New York Times. A dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. The people who are closest to a thing are often the most wary of it. Technologists know how phones really work, and many have decided they don't want their own children anywhere near them. A wariness that has been slowly brewing is turning into a region-wide consensus. The benefits of screens as a learning tool are overblown, and the risks for addiction and stunting development seem high. The debate in Silicon Valley now is about how much exposure to phones is okay. Out of that same article, <clears throat> Athena Chariva, I don't want to pronounce her name, uh, who worked as an assistant, executive assistant at Facebook, now works for Zuckerberg's philanthropic arm. Here's a quote, a quote from her. I'm convinced the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children. These are not Christians. These are not people that don't know what they're talking about. 
she lives by the mantra that the last child in class to get a phone wins. Is that the mantra in our communities? Here's a new article, just came across this uh, this year. Secondhand screen time may be just as dangerous as secondhand smoking. Research suggests that if the desire for a phone builds an infancy, it can become infancy, it can become second nature. Babies see phones, it's, it's moving, it's glittering, it's, it's exciting. <clears throat> what do we do about this? Does this matter? And I have no idea where you're at in your communities with this. So it feels like I'm just sort of scattering, just shooting out here. Um, but what can we do? If the children of this world are raising such, a, such an alarm, what should we as followers of Christ do? Now, maybe we subconsciously think, well, you know what? There's probably a Mennonite exemption to this. It, it doesn't affect our children that way. But really? Are the children of this world wiser in their generation than the children of light? I just have four points, four things that I think we can do in school. Number one, promote real over virtual. We live in an age where virtual reality is becoming more popular. I can have my own electronic community. I can interact with friends that are out there to the expense of interacting with them here. What happens in your youth groups? Do your youth get together to talk to people that aren't there, to communicate with people that aren't there? I think electronic media hinders communication. I would love to discuss that more. In school, we ought to promote the idea that face-to-face -face interaction is the primary way to experience community. Promote interaction with people who are present with you. And this means that in school, the ideal, ideal is a real teacher present with real students. The ideal is a real teacher present with real students. While we might use some media in our schools to teach students, let's recognize and promote the idea that such a situation is less than ideal. It is not better to have a professional teacher teaching on the screen than to have a real teacher, I mean, there's a real teacher too, but a present teacher that doesn't know as much about the subject teaching. It's better to have a person that's present. And I'm not saying we can't use any of that. We do it in our school. We might need to, but... Let's not promote it as that is actually a good thing. No, it's just because we don't have the best. <clears throat> Education is not just about imparting knowledge. Rather, it's life on life impact. Jesus said it this way. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so if, even if the teacher is on a screen, that's who you're wanting your children to become like. And if we're gonna do well with technology, I think we have to recognize that this is vital. Promote real over virtual. Number two, recognize high academic standards does not equal the latest technology. We want high academic standards. And sometimes we think that high academic standards means the latest and greatest. And I'm old to remember the time before internet. And, and I remember as it became more accessible, and I remember reading about the digital divide. The rich kids are going to be able to have internet, and the poor kids won't, and the rich are just going to get ahead so much further. 
And then I come across an article like this. The digital gap between rich and poor kids is not what we expected. America's public schools are still promoting devices with screens, even offering digital-only preschools. The rich are banning screens from class altogether. It wasn't long ago that the worry was that the rich students would have access to the internet earlier. And you can read faster than I can read. It could happen that the children of poor and middle-class parents will, will be raised by screens, while the children of Silicon Valley's elite will be going back to wooden toys and the luxury of human interaction. Sometimes it seems we try so hard to catch up with society, and about the time we think we're getting there, they go back to what we had. Recognize high academic standards doesn't mean the latest technology. But third point, promote tech-free childhood. Now maybe it should be called tech-reduced. But we wouldn't give our children drugs, would we? Would you give your children drugs? Why give them something that's designed to act like drugs? Chris Anderson, speaking about screens, former editor of Wired, now runs a robotics and drone company. On the scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack cocaine. This is not somebody that doesn't know. He's spending his life in technology. I've told parents, don't be impressed if your five-year-old can find or use things on your phone. Rather be impressed if your eight-year-old doesn't know how to turn on the computer or anymore use the app on your phone. And I know this rests with parents, but do our patrons know that we would rather have our students hunting buffalo in the backyard than, than using some educational program on their phone or on the computer? Do they know that? <clears throat> Promote a tech-free childhood. And finally, engage, educate your students and community about these issues. Have your students thought about how technology media is affecting them? Do you ask them? I recently showed them that um, second-hand screen use uh, article, and we had an interesting discussion. I asked him, so, what are you on? Of course, Facebook is an old people's thing. It is. Ask your young people. Um, and one of them had an observation that I, observed, that I tended to agree with. You know, technology is really an old people's problem. I think so. Sometimes it's the old people that don't do well with it. <clears throat> but we had an interesting, worthwhile discussion. And yes, those discussions take time away from, it was physical science class. But, well, that fits with physical science, I guess, technology, right? But we have to have these conversations. If we don't, who is? Do some research. I'm not a techie person. Two years ago, I didn't know much about this, and I was hoping we could get someone into our community to talk, that knows about it to talk about it. But this is an issue that's impacting our communities. And here are some, here's three places I would suggest. Did you Google? Um, if you want to read something about it, have smartphones destroyed a generation? An article in The Atlantic. And then sort of the opposite side, yes, smartphones are destroying a generation, but not of kids. Um, giving a different viewpoint, and then the secondhand screen time. You can, if you just take the time, you can find out uh, what is happening. 
It's affecting our communities. Can our schools be filled with men of understanding, men of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do? Thank you. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.